You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Welcome all to this episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host this week. I'm David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in balmy Houston, Texas. With me this week is Nathan Gilmore, a professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you today, sir? Positively spingy. <laughs> is there a sping in your step? Oh, you best believe it. Sping is spung. <laughs> Also with us is Michael Farmer uh, in, where are you in Georgia? I haven't yet had to say where you are. Woodstock. Woodstock, Georgia. Excellent. How goes it, sir? Uh, Going pretty well. Sweet deal. Well, before we get into our topic this week, uh, which is Dante's uh, epistle to a very large canine, um, what is on the network? Uh, Sectarian Review has a new episode uh, dealing actually with a summer online dispute about the place of pop culture in Christian devotion and in Christian engagement with the world. Uh, Pretty interesting little discussion. Uh, We also have another episode of Core Curriculum, do we not, Michael? Uh, Yes, we do. And another to come the day after this. We're advancing steadily through the Iliad. Very cool. And I'm beginning pre-preparation for our next series, so things are moving. Yeah, yeah, looking forward to it. Well, dear listeners, check those out. Um, also, what what's the next uh, what's the next movie in Before They Were Live? The Black Cauldron, and Nathan will be on it too. Oh man! Yes, I will. Yes, I will. I have been waiting for this one for, I guess it's years now. You know, Josh has too. He said that one of the reasons he wanted to do that show was because it would make him watch The Black Cauldron, which he's never seen and I've never seen. And it's Nathan's favorite movie of all time. Is that right? <laughs> I don't know if I ever said that or I would say that, but uh, I do enjoy the film. Well, I've read some of the books that that movie uh, from the series that that, that movie is based on. And I know the... Uh, the medieval background material that the books are based on. So I'm really interested to see what y'all have to say about the movie. This week, though, uh, we are dealing not with uh, cauldrons, uh, black or otherwise. Uh, We are dealing with uh, epistles. Uh, A a letter from Dante to this con grande fellow. Um, Who is this guy, Nathan? And... What kind of relationship does he have with Dante, and what does that have to do with the sense we make of this letter? Big Dog, as I like to call him, uh, is a nobleman from Verona. Uh, His public career 
uh, spans, roughly speaking, the first third of the 14th century. And he is part of the Ghibelline faction, which is how I pronounce it. If you guys pronounce it differently, uh, I'm sure our listeners will enjoy the differences. Uh, which is the faction in uh, sort of the wars between the Italian city-states uh, that sides with the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, the Guelphs, which is the other, which is the other uh, faction, uh, side with the Pope. Uh, now, the Pope is not like Pope Francis and not even like Pope Benedict in the 14th century. Uh, but he is, like the Holy Roman Emperor, Emperor pardon me, uh, a regional warlord. He has his own military. Uh, he, when he has enemies, uh, he doesn't merely excommunicate them, although he might do that as well. But he also uh, has, you know, assault teams to go after his enemies. So uh, think about this, you know, less in terms of, you know, late 20th century, early 21st century uh, Catholic life and more in terms of sort of a, um, I, I don't even know, like a, a World of Warcraft sort of thing where you've got, you know, the, the clerical factions, but they're heavily armed. Uh, Big Dog uh, was, like I said, you know, one of the more successful generals in the Holy Roman Emperor's faction. Uh, and what's important for this letter is that when Dante is exiled from Florence, uh, when Florence is taken over by the Guelphs, uh, Big Dog takes him in, becomes his uh, patron for his poetry. Uh, and for that reason, uh, a couple things happen. One is uh, he makes his way in a few different ways into the Commedia. And the second thing is that uh, Dante writes this letter as a preface to the third uh, canticle of the Commedia, the Paradiso, uh, explaining uh, some of the uh, idiosyncratic features uh, of this. So when we think of the audience or the reader for this letter, we should understand that Dante is, in fact, uh, writing to honor him because that's the nature of the, uh, the patron and the poet relationship. Uh, and also that, you know, this is not merely a personal friend, but someone who has been an ally to Dante when Dante is driven out and, you know, basically in exile in the world. Now, David, I'll, I'll confess that, uh, we're recording this after I taught four classes with a brief break for lunch in between. So what details did I get wrong there? All that checks out to me. I've I've dealt much less with Dante in general and his context uh, than you. Um, just just being able to unpack the the meaning of his of his actual name uh, is that, that that's funny enough to me. Uh, but but that uh, the political context is enormously important uh, to to Dante. He he begins the letter. Uh, by saying that he is a Florentine, uh, a Florentine yet not a Florentine. He says a Florentine by birth, not by disposition. And I wondered if that was just a weird translation of location or if he's saying something about his internal disposition, the way we would use that term in 2019. I, I think it's the latter, Michael, because over and over in the Commedia, you get people just railing on the immorality and the wickedness of Florence. Uh, and yeah, again, you know, I mean, at least one variable in that system, I won't say it's the total system, is the fact that this is the city that won't let him go back to his wife and children. Yeah, yeah. I, one of the things that uh, I, I think is helpful, too, is that prior to the coup 
and Dante's resulting exile. Um, I don't know that this is his attitude. Um, and Florence would have been, I, I think for him, a relatively good place to come from. You know, before that, uh, the, um, you know, the, the, there's a, a history of Florentine art, and then, and I, it just seems it just seems to me that when I when I get it to this letter, there's uh, see that phrase in this letter. There's so much bitterness there. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, j- just ironic that after his death, uh, he, you know, he's buried in uh, Ravenna, but uh, there was some dispute uh, between Ravenna and Florence over his body. You know, who who gets to keep Dante? Um, almost like uh, <laughs> almost like the squabble between Thebes and Athens over uh, over Oedipus and Oedipus at Colonus, um, but uh, Ravenna's argument is exactly the same as Athens' argument in that Sophocles play. Um, y'all didn't want him when he was alive. <laughs> yeah, I, I, there's something to it's, that. It seems fair to me. So yeah, and and also the uh, the relationship of patronage is is important too um and that uh that segues into the next the next point that i'm really interested in in hearing your take on michael we're pretty accustomed to reading dante's commedia um with aristotle on the other hand especially uh inferno so i'm intrigued to see that one of dante's first moves at least based on my reading of it was to contradict aristotle at least on the topic of friendship between unequals. What does Aristotle have to say about the topic, and what does Dante say? Yeah, so Aristotle talks about friendship in the Nicomachean Ethics. I think we have, um, we probably covered it in our episode on friendship 10 years ago or whatever. It was a long time ago. Yeah. I was living living in Tallahassee, so I, I, um, I know it was a long time ago. But just to review, if you haven't memorized our entire back catalog yet, um, there are three types of friendship for Aristotle. There are two imperfect types and then perfect friendship. Uh, imperfect friendship is based on things like mutual usefulness or mutual pleasure. So like if uh, I need something from you and you can do a favor for me, we're friends in a way, right? But we're not really friends. It's, it's, a, it's a friendship that's based on utility and thus if the utility ceases, the friendship will cease. Likewise, friendship based on pleasure, you think about like drinking buddies from college or whatever. I don't know what you and your friends did, David. Um, (laughs) Those friendships are real, but they're imperfect. And once you stop bringing each other pleasure, the friendship's kind of going to dissolve. True friendship for Aristotle is based on mutual virtue. So you admire one another for the virtues you have and you will the good for the other. And I think... The biggest, um, the biggest difference, as you note, is that Aristotle says there's no such thing as friendship between unequals, at least not true friendship, um, because, uh, well, Aristotle's writing in a rigidly hierarchical society. He's writing to gentlemen in a real sense. And so uh, how could you be friends with someone who's a lower station than you? What exactly are you going to admire in them? The reason it changes in Dante is because it changes in Thomas Aquinas. So Aquinas needs to take stock of the fact that Jesus Christ calls his disciples friends, um, which means there has to be able to, there, there must be friendship between unequals if Jesus says that. So Aquinas opens it up 
to uh, to unequal friendships, and that's what what Dante's appeal, appealing to here. And it just goes to show you the degree to which Christianity was a democratizing force on some of those uh, some of those pre-Christian ideas. It also goes to show you, by the way, that. Uh, Aquinas does not just accept everything Aristotle says as he is sometimes caricatured as doing. When it contradicts the Bible, uh, Aquinas is going to go with the Bible if he can't find some way to, to, uh, to bring them together as he can't in this case. So yeah, um, this, is, this is another example of Dante's Thomism. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, 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 do you believe him when he says that they're, they're friends or do you think this is more of a utility relationship? I don't know enough about their relationship beyond this to beyond this letter in order to be able to answer that question. Because it, it would seem to me, David, that the the relationship between a patron and an artist would be one of utility on the one side. the The artist needs the patron's money, and pleasure on the other side. The patron likes the art that the artist is producing, rather than the true friendship of the sort that Aristotle or Aquinas are talking about. Yeah. Yeah, but being able to um, being able to present him this way in relationship, depending on what sort of person Con Grande is um, in his uh, desire to be a patron of of Dante, um, sometimes people in power want to use um, the artist, the philosopher, the scholar as a commodity. Um, but sometimes the the powerful person who becomes that patron uh, is in it because they they see themselves as having an interest in that in in those topics um, in in that life of the mind anyway. I'm thinking of of uh, Queen Christina of Sweden, um, you know, importing Descartes. Uh, she, you know, she seemed to have um, not not just the uh, the aristocrats' desire to um, attach their names to to those who are renowned in the fields of the arts and philosophy and so forth, um, but also a genuine uh, interest in in learning, in having these kinds of philosophical uh, discussions herself. So maybe if Con Grande is that sort of guy, um, Dante is responding to perhaps a, a, a perception of that desire um, within within his patron to be seen as um, one who is like Dante, able to converse with Dante about these things. Um, I don't know that that necessarily changes on Dante's side the fact that the relationship still has that utilitarian um, aspect, because it's utility from both angles, right? Um, even if the the patron does not regard does not regard the the artist or the philosopher or whatever as a tool, um, the artist or philosopher still can't avoid thinking of the patron as a paycheck. Yeah, I would think it would get in the way. The way you can't be friends with your boss, right? I mean, you, you get along with your boss, uh, I hope, but you're not buddies. There's there's always a there's always a certain degree of constraint. Right. And if, if, if there's not, it's probably because your boss doesn't have that much power over you. You know, your department chair, you might be able to be friends with. I suspect most of us are not friends with our provosts, if we have them. Um, we're just, you know, friendly is about the best you can hope for. Could be wrong. Yeah, that makes some sense. 
And and I and I like this conversation because this demonstrates the perpetual tension between art and the means of funding art. So I mean, whether you're talking about the you know the democratically sponsored tragedies of Athens, or whether you're talking about this patronage system, or whether you're talking about the commercial system where art reaches people because either uh, you know you sell more copies or uh, you know some other commercial transaction happens. I mean, there's always a complexity to art. You know, I mean, people who say that you know they are pure artists and they are disconnected from those things are probably trying to pick your pocket, watch your wallet. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dante intends, uh, as a gift to his friend, uh, to provide an interpretation of the first lines of Paradiso. But before can he can explain the part, he has to account for the whole. And before he can do that, he has to explain polysemy in general. Uh, and allegory in particular. Um, we This is the part of the letter that we've probably referred to most in previous episodes. Um, so one of the reasons that I wanted to cover this letter is because um, I, I remembered us tapping back to this letter and this, this in, uh, discussion in particular. Um, so if you could walk us through that and we can forever just sort of point back to this episode. <laughs> Sure thing, sure thing. I mean, uh, this is a, a a section of this letter, and of course, uh, Dante does not invent this kind of polysemous reading, but uh, his articulation is one of the more famous ones. It, it also uh, comes from Thomas Aquinas, is that right, Nathan? Uh, and before that, Augustine, and to some extent before that, Plato. So, I mean, it's a, it's a very old theory of reading that every uh, proper poetic text has uh, multiple signs to it. Uh, but yeah, Thomas Aquinas definitely deals with it. That's absolutely true. Uh, and, and it's something that uh, I've tried to employ as I have, you know, in my academic and intellectual career, tried to stay with one foot in the biblical studies world and another foot in the medieval studies world, uh, because those two groups tend not to like the way each other read the Bible. Uh, and this might be dishonest on my part, and you all can tell me if it is, but uh I think that the uh, idea of polysemous reading provides a way out of that. But let's get to Dante. Um, this is a, a brief enough passage that I can just read uh, section 20 of the letter uh, at length. or No, actually, rather, uh, 21, sorry. For the better illustration of this method of exposition, we may apply it, the polysemous method, to the following verses. Quote, When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob... Uh, from a people of strange language, Judah was his sanctuary and Israel his dominion, end quote. For if we consider the letter alone, the thing signified to us is the going out of the children of Israel from Egypt in the time of Moses. If allegory, our redemption through Christ is signified. If the moral sense, the conversion of the soul from sorrow and misery of sin to a state of grace is signified. If the anagogical, the passing of the sanctified soul from the bondage of the corruption of the world to the liberty of everlasting glory is signified. So the idea here is that a proper text uh, possesses not merely one reading. So it's a, it's a fundamentally dishonest thing to say, what is the real meaning of the text? Because a, a proper reading of a text yields up a plurality of readings. 
And, you know, Dante is interested in this because uh, in his own uh, narrative journey in the, in the Paradiso, uh, he's going to say that ultimately there is a, a literal sense in which, you know, the main character is seeing what happens to souls after death, pure and simple, he says. Uh, but he also says that there's a possible uh, allegorical reading uh, that has to do with, you know, what is it that makes someone deserving of reward or punishment in terms of divine justice. Uh, so, like I said, I mean, you know, the way that I, I have translated it into my own career, and I apologize, guys, for getting autobiogra autobiographical here, uh, is that the reading that critical modern biblical studies yields that tends to focus on the historical moment of composition as one distinct reading, and then the history as something else distinct, and then pretty much leaves allegorical readings to the medievalists, uh, I'm inclined to say, well, I mean, if we uh, take a page from Dante here, uh, we can glean something good from each of these readings without saying that we have to dispose of some of them so that we can hold on to the others. Um, does that make any sense at all, David, or am I being dishonest? I, the the way that the way that he explains it here is um, is really interesting to me. I, I I think I think I think that you've you've unpacked Dante here um, really well. What um, what is interesting to me is reading him in along with the history of medieval biblical interpretation. Right, which you covered recently on profiles. Yeah, and that that was a um, if, if you haven't listened to that, listeners, um, I invite you to. Um, but one of the one of the things that was most interesting in the book is that the basis for being able to read a text, to read the text of the scripture in the ways that medieval allegory invites, um, is that uh, medieval Bible scholars, like patristic Bible scholars before them, regarded the Bible as a special kind of book with a single um, uh, many human authors but a single authoring spirit um, uh, inspiring and moving them to write so that um, finding other patterns of coherence um, within the text and across um, what would be what would be um, the uh, different works and authors and time periods uh, is something that that patristic and later medieval um, biblical readers expect, right? So there is that um, that classical anchor for polysemy and reading text at different levels. The biblical reading tradition anchors that in some theological claims about scripture. Um, and so the th the thing that interests me uh, about about Dante and about other earlier medieval written allegories, um, this, you know, something like uh, the Middle English Pearl poem, um, or the Old English uh, poems about um, the the panther or the phoenix or the whale, um, it, it's those are interesting to me because taking writing a text that has those levels in it as an author 
um, is a logically distinct thing from being able to see to read those levels in scripture um, from the perspective of a medieval theologian and the way that Dante um, the way that he 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 frames those things um, I I wonder whether he sees the distinction that I see or whether he sees the the reading of scripture in this way as an invitation for him to do the same and to because I'm pretty sure he's not inviting Con Grande to see Paradiso as scripture. Oh, he skirts pretty close to that, I think. Yeah. Okay. I mean at the, at the at the end when he's talking about, you know, the the nature of the revelation and I mean he is making a defense of the poem, I, it seems to me, uh, in terms that indicate he wants Con Grande to receive them as, at the very least, some kind of revelation, rather than merely invention. Okay. All right. You're, we're we're going to have to ramp up to that. That sounds, that sounds interesting. <laughs> uh, this is kind of a follow-up um, to that. Uh, he has this... Uh, one one couple of sections uh, later on where he describes the subject matter of the Divine Comedy, but he does it from two angles. He talks about it in the literal sense and in the allegorical sense. So he says, uh, the subject of the whole work, taken in a literal sense only, is the state of souls after death, pure and simple. For on and about the argument of the uh, for on and about that, the argument of the whole work turns. If, however, the work be regarded from the allegorical point of view. The subject is man according as by his merits or demerits. In the exercises of his free will, he is deserving of reward or punishment by justice. That if is really strange to me, because um, it seems to suggest that Dante thinks the Commedia can be read meaningfully with attention to only the literal, and I have never ever taught it that way. I mean, I've been, I've told I've told students for years, if you are reading the Commedia only literally, you are misreading it. But maybe I wasn't paying enough attention to that. If have I been misunderstanding and misteaching Dante the whole time? Can you read this thing just literally? Do you think? Well, I think to read it polysemously means that, in some sense, one of your readings has to be only literal. And the other one has to be only allegorical because otherwise you don't have two separate readings, but you have one uh, mashup reading. So, I mean, I, I, I think that's how I took that. Now, I, I do think that, you know, the, the matter of allegory um, really does come in. I mean, you know, in Plato's dialogues at the earliest point, but uh, sort of in the classic Christian text in Augustine's uh, De Doctrina Christiana, when he's talking about, you know, parts of the scripture uh, that seem to lead to immorality, right? Uh, and I, I always like to go to this passage because uh, it's a very different approach than the modern biblical studies approach. Uh, and this is from book three of uh, Augustine's De Doctrina. Quote, Matters which seem like wickedness to the unenlightened in scripture, whether merely spoken or actually performed, whether attributed to God or to people whose holiness is commended to us, are entirely figurative. Such mysteries are to be elucidated in terms of the need to nourish love. A person who makes more limited use of transient things than the moral conventions of his own society allow is either self-controlled or superstitious. A person, who, a person whose use of them 
exceeds the limits set by practice of good people in a society is either guilty of wickedness or an indication of some special significance. In all such matters, what is re reprehensible is not the use made of things, but the user's desire. Uh, and, and I think that is one of the original urges towards allegorical reading uh, is to say that there are things in the Bible that genuinely don't look like Jesus. Uh, like when, you know, King David conquers Moab and he takes the conquered and he lines them up in three lines and has three, uh, two of the three lines slaughtered. That's not very Jesus-y. Uh, so, I mean, you know, what Augustine is going to say there is that is a figurative uh, narrative when it comes to its moral force. Uh, it is never that literally we are to emulate David in that respect. It is that, you know, if we have, you know, enough possessions to sustain three livelihoods, we should always give two of them away or something like that, right? I'm, I'm making that up. Uh, so I think that, you know, what Dante is doing here is interesting because he is certainly drawing on that tradition. And, you know, a conversation that you and I had earlier, David, about... Uh, and I can't remember what the context was about the, uh, the travel across the river Styx in the Inferno, mm -hmm. uh, where Dante, you know, uh, when he's crossing the river and surrounded by the wrathful, he becomes wrathful towards one of them. Yes. And then, Vir and then Virgil congratulates him for it. Uh, I tend to read that as Virgil and Dante have both been infected. And I, I honestly think, I mean, it's that Aug Augustinian urge of mine to say that if something is going on there, that Dante is a careful enough poet that he's not going to encourage the very evil that he's displaying as punished. Yeah, yeah, we read that one differently. Um, oh, we definitely do. Yeah. I, I, I think I'm, a, I'm definitely an idiosyncratic <laughs> weirdo reader of that part of the Inferno, but I'm, I'm idiosyncratic and weird in so many ways. Yeah. I mean, I, the, way, the way I teach it is uh, almost every time... Uh, in any time someone does something that at the literal level seems bizarre or nonsensical, that's almost always a clue that something's happening at the allegorical level that's that's sort of become the mover at that point. Um, but you know that I, you know I, that that's that that's that's kind of the way that the way that I've read it, you know. To explain, you know, why did, why is Dido in Circle Two, Circle Two, and not um, lower down in, you know, what Circle Circle Seven? Yeah, with the suicides. Yeah, I mean, because she's not, she's not Dido. She's like this one, this one little slice of Dido life that is meant to illustrate a particular way in which you can be carried away passion by passion. Yep, yep, that's precisely right. Yeah. Michael, I just talked for like eight minutes without breathing. Uh, is there anything you want to add? Yeah, I'll say that the conversation you're representing is happening with David Grubbs actually happened with you and David Bentley Hart on your... Uh, uh, it also happened interview. there, but I, I rehearsed it with David Grubbs before I went to ah. the uh, lesser David and brought it to him. <laughs> <laughs> the greater maker. Um, the other thing I would say is absolutely you can read the Commedia meaningfully with attention only to the literal. It's how I suspect non-Christians have to read it. And they're not misreading it. They're just reading it um, 
shallowly is probably not the right they're they're missing something important but they're not missing something where there's a gap they're missing something where it doesn't go as deep as it could because those four levels of reading that dante proposes the literal is the first one and and the primary one in the sense not that it's the most important or the most meaningful but because it is the first you have to read things literally before you can do the other readings so I don't think Dante, for example, would be cool with saying, oh, well, you know, the Israelites didn't actually escape across the Red Sea. No, the literal story there is important. It's just it goes beyond its literal importance. So absolutely people can read the Inferno just as a as a story about the, the souls of the damned. Um, they're missing an awful lot of um, important, interesting uh, uh, practical, uh, as we'll see in a moment, stuff. But they can do that, and they're not misreading it. Yeah. I, I think the reason, one of the reasons why I've started talking about Dante to my students the way that I do is that I'm trying to head off at the pass um, the students who come into Inferno convinced that what Dante is telling us is either something that that happened to him in some kind of a mystical vision, which I've had some students who who treat it that way, you know, you know, this guy had a vision of hell, and this is it. Um, or that he's that he is actually walking us through his literal beliefs about the afterlife. Right, right. This is not a geography treatise. Right. And what I point out to them is that all of you know, if if you want to if you want to read this as Dante's literal afterlife beliefs. Um, I, you know, feel free if that's really what you're into, but they are internally um, incoherent if if you want to read them as a literal representation of an afterlife belief, because no human being is so neat as to be defined by only one sin. Precisely. Right. I mean, right. I mean, just just that on on its on its own would be enough to. Uh, uh, I, I think you know sto- stove in the whole of this as a, as a literal um, kind of afterlife, but um, I, I, I always get that question like, well, what does he think about this and what does he think about that? And I say, well, he's what what he's what he's mainly interested in doing is telling you the story so that you can learn something about the ways that you and your choices can make your life particular kinds of hell now. Right. right. And David, the way that I like to tell it to my students is if you ran up to Dante with a shovel and said, where should I start digging so I can find this river of blood? He would mumble some curse words in Italian under his breath and write you off as an idiot. <laughs> Mamma mia. Awesome. Well, Genre is also very important to Dante, and he explains quite helpfully that his work is a comedy at length, but it's also a philosophical work of practical ethics. So, Michael, uh, could you walk us through this wacky genre hybrid? Is it a centaur? Is it a platypus? Is it a transformer? Do I need some other kind of metaphor? I think it's kind of a lasagna, which is his, his <laughs> metaphor. His metaphor for reading, if you don't mind the uh, if you don't mind the ethnic stereotype, right? Because there are all these layers, and they all coexist, and they're all the thing, or at least part of the thing. 
um, but they're not really in tension with one another, right? And and to really eat a lasagna right, you have to eat uh, all the layers at once. You you know you don't most people don't peel them off and eat the noodles and then eat the ground beef or whatever whatever it is you put in lasagna. I'm not sure I've ever sausage, made sausage sausage. There would, you go. That'd be really sad. Yeah, right, right. So I, I think I think that's the way that's the appropriate metaphor here. And if if again if any of our Italian American or Italian uh, listeners. Uh, feel like that's a stereotype. Feel free to substitute moussaka or some other sort of uh, layered casserole. Spanakopita. There you go. Um, so it's a comedy. Uh, the reason I've always heard that the Divine Comedy is a comedy is that it has a happy ending, and that's that's part of what he's talking about here. He says that a tragedy or goat song, uh, because it's as ugly as a goat, as foul like a goat. He says, "I'm not sure if that's really that." The, uh, that is straight out of Aristotle's Poetics. Is it? Uh, so anyway, a, a tragedy um, begins relatively happily and ends terribly, whereas a comedy begins relatively terribly and ends happily. So in that sense, absolutely, it's a comedy. But the other sense in which it's a comedy, he says, a comedy comes from Comos, a village, and Oda, a song, where whence comedy is, as it were, a rustic song. So it's a song composed in the language of the people. Uh, and I, I, that really jumped out at me this time because when you sent us, David sent us a, uh, he, he sent us a double language version of this where the left side is in Latin and the right side is in uh, in English. And I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, but I was really surprised that it was written in Latin because very famously the Divine Comedy is written in Italian, in um, in vulgar Italian. It's it's I think the the first important literary work to be written in Italian. So I, I assumed Dante just wrote in Italian, um, but no, that was a that was a conscious decision he made in order to make uh, the Divine Comedy more of a comedy in that sense. Yes, the language in which even women folk hold their talk. He says. Even women folk. At the same time, it's a work of practical ethics in the sense that the entire purpose of the book, the aim of the whole, he says, and the, of the part, the part would be the paradiso, is to remove those living in this life from a state of misery and to bring them to a state of happiness. So the whole reason he's writing, he's got this form he's writing in, but the whole reason he's writing is that the people reading it might turn away from their sin and tor- turn toward virtue. So, yeah, it's two different genres, but the genres have totally different goals behind them, and he's able to aim at both of them at once um, in this kind of lasagna structure. That's, I, I love the way he, he thinks through this. I, I, I just find it so fascinating uh, because he, he presents it as if uh, he, he intentionally chose these two genres because of the way that they have the same kind of arc, um, you know, he he wants to he's he's like I want you to take your terrible life and make it better. Practical ethics, and so I'm going to lay it on top of a comedy, which is about um, this you know the tragedy that 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 comes up to a happy ending. I just well, it's, it's like it's like literally the comedy literally makes life better, right? Yeah. Life is better at the end of a comedy than it is at the beginning. Yeah, I, I, I just, I just think that's so much fun to 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 to, to watch him thinking in this way. Anything you want to pitch in here, Nathan? 
Uh, only that, you know, when we look at uh, this as a, a piece of practical ethics, uh, it, it I, I, and this is entirely self-serving, David, uh, it vindicates the way that I tend to teach Dante. Uh, <laughs> that, you know, when we look at this narrative, I mean, it is for the sake of self-examination, uh, which makes it, you know, it, it, it puts it in a, a common league with a lot of comedies because, of course, you know, when you look at especially a Ben Johnson comedy, uh, you know, there's definitely a, a satirical edge to that. Uh, you don't want to be like the really scuzzy characters uh, so that you end up happy like the less scuzzy characters. Uh, but, I mean, there's something more going on with the Commedia of Dante than there is even with a, you know, a Voltarian or a Ben Johnson satire. It's not merely exposing uh, what is corrupt and what is uh, deserving of our scorn in the world, uh, but it's also, you know, a more deliberate examination of those things that make greater goodness possible yeah yeah i like that um the part part of that greater goodness uh element in in uh in paradiso in particular uh, makes it a stretch uh dante says for for a poet um in the uh, the way he talks about the opening of Paradiso, uh, he describes it as a prologue or an exordium, which appropriately includes an invocation, and this is his quote, inasmuch as poets have to petition the superior beings for something beyond the ordinary range of human powers, something almost in the nature of a divine gift. So, what is the subject, or the the, the task that is beyond the range of ordinary human powers that Dante is attempting to express here in his work of practical ethics. And what are the tools that he's making use of, whether poetic, rhetorical, philosophical, theological, whatever, um, to speak that ineffable, beyond the range of human power truth? Well, I want to begin uh, with some lines from the Paradiso because they're they're so well crafted, of course. And this is from uh, Tony Ezelin's uh, translation of it, uh, Canto One, starting at about line thirteen. O good Apollo, for this last work of art, make me as fit a vessel of your power as you demand when you bestow the crown of the, of the beloved laurel. Till this hour, one peak of twin Parnassus has sufficed, but if I am to enter the lists now, I shall need both. Then surge into my breast and breathe your song as when you drew the vein Marsyas from the sheath of his own limbs. And of course he goes on at some length. But this is, uh, again, you know, pretty standard uh, device in epic poetry. Uh, it is a call upon higher beings, superhuman beings, uh, to bestow these powers. And in this case, uh, it is the power not to describe because as you said i mean this is by defini definition ineffable uh but it is to give a shadow uh which is something that you know has a, a long pedigree going all the way at least back to plato the notion that the artistic work is always the uh shadow of the reality that it's presenting uh, so it is i'm going to call it a gesture of humility uh because in some ways dante you know presents himself as one of the grand poetic egos of the literary tradition. 
But, I mean, in this case, I mean, we have to grant that, you know, it's not only that I lack the power to present the reality in itself, but I need help from the heavens uh, in order even to give a shadow of the reality of heavens themselves. Uh, and this is where I want to turn. I, I had some other things I was going to say, but I want to free up some time to fight with David because that's fun. Um, at the end of this letter, I mean, he starts invoking scriptural texts like St. Paul saying, I knew a man who ascended to the third heaven, uh, St. Matthew. Uh, you know, he is invoking these authoritative texts that, you know, on a literal level, and I would say for the Christian, on a level that shares a world with us, someone is really having experiences of the divine that are revelatory. And at the very least, he is comparing his own poem to those scriptural moments. So I, I guess when I have read this, David, I mean, I, I took this maybe too seriously, uh, as I tend to do, as that interview that Michael alluded to with David Bentley Hart indicates. Uh, but I take this as a fairly straightforward um, nod, at the very least, uh, to those scriptural moments as analogous to his own moment. How do you read it? That's really interesting. I read them, and this, this is just me, um, I read them as him citing biblical precedents for the way that he talked about, um, especially at, at the beginning of the canto, um, the narrator talks about um, having seen things that he's not able to talk about, and therefore, and it not, you know, because they're beyond the capacity of language, and also um, having returned to the mortal sphere, he's forgotten things. You know, his his memory was unable to sustain them, but he's just going to do the best that he can. And I, I took them as him citing those biblical references to say, this is an appropriate way of talking about this matter. That that was the way that I'd taken it. Um, I am interested in uh, reading reading it differently um, because I don't know a lot about the the earlier reception of the Commedia. I mean, did do do you? I mean, did people read the Commedia and think, "Oh yeah, Dante saw the afterlife"? I have heard stories that in between the publication of the uh, Purgatory and the Paradiso, that there were people who would see Dante in the streets of Verona and who would cross to the other side of the street because that was the man who went to hell. Now, that's not to say that they should be our <laughs> ideal readers, uh, but certainly that seems to have been one possibility for receiving Dante in the history of receiving Dante, in his own lifetime even. Wow. Okay, see, I, I had never... You know that this is here. Here, here I am, the medievalist who, at at every stage, wants to resist modernity in his soul. And look at that. There's me being modern. <laughs> I I think I heard that story, David, uh, when the Ideas podcast from the Canadian Broadcast Company uh, did a a trio of episodes on Dante. I think that's where I heard it. That's fascinating. Well, Michael, I remember being told in grad school on good authority that the author is dead and certainly Dante is quite dead we've already talked about Florence and Ravenna squabbling over his bones uh, yet though 
he died, he still speaks, in, in this letter at least. So to what extent should or can Dante's readers take this letter as a guide for reading his poetry? Well, if we take him seriously that the poetry is meant to be polysemous, uh, it makes sense that we would listen to what he says, but also not limit ourselves to what he says. So so that his his understanding of his own poem is one or four or however many layers of meaning onto which there are other appropriate readings of the text. And I think probably we went into this when we did our episode on Hans Georg Gadamer's The Universality of the Hermeneutical Problem, because I talk about this when I t- used to teach that essay. So I, I imagine I talked about it in that in the episode where we talked about the essay, that, um, you know, there are any number of right readings, uh, appropriate, acceptable readings of a, of a given literary text. Um, but then there's also all sorts of ones that are out of bounds, that the 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 text provides us with a a kind of sheet music that we we determine how we play. Um, and so, you know, Dante gives us a couple of different ways to think about playing it, but that's not exhaustive. So um, if we take the poly, the polysemery, I've lost the, the word now, the polysemy, if we take that seriously, um, we can actually take it even more seriously than Dante does by saying there are levels beyond the four he presents to us here and in Il Convivia. What do you think? Yeah, I like I like that. Um, it's it's useful, but not um, not necessarily restrictive or something that could rule out of bounds um, uh, and otherwise, you know, you know, well sustained at the close reading level uh, argument. I like that. Nathan, and here's where I get uh, Emersonian. Uh, what I like to do is take the uh, the idea that you know the author's reading is one reading among others, uh, and and just kind of draw a circle around that and around uh, you know the study that attempts to discern authorial intent, and say that you know the author's intent, as best we can discern it, uh, is not something simple. It's something that takes work to get to, and also it's one of possible valid readings. So you know, I mean, it's it's. I, I think it's a good practice to try to discern what the author was trying to do. Like I said, that's probably my biblical studies background talking as much as anything else. And I would also say that let's entertain other possible valid readings because they enrich rather than detract from that meaning. Yeah, I think we're saying the same thing. Cool. I I am I'm 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 encouraged by uh, by that particular by that particular notion because it's 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 not as if what Dante says is important, and when you read this letter, it's not as if the authorial intent is something that can even be stated simply. Uh, when he is volunteering his own explanation for not a lot of lines of poetry, it takes him a long time to unpack everything that he's bringing to it. So. Um, you know, even if Dante has, uh, even if we want to, to give um, pride of place and importance to Dante's own um, intention behind a, each line of Commedia, that doesn't mean it's going to be a small or, or simple <laughs> thing. Um, the one little bit that we know, um, you open that can and it just keeps spilling out, apparently. 
so um, the copiousness of the readings, uh, even the even the ones that are very likely intended by the author, um, is still quite copious. Well, I've been in the tiller so far, and we've uh, there's more than we've touched on, both in the letter and in the implications uh, for engaging um, further with the Commedia and maybe other texts too. What are some ports of importance we'd want to note before we wrap up? Michael? I just want to point to a small moment in Section 7 um, where he's talking about innovating versus following artistic rules. I'll just read the whole section. But the common herd and their ignorance judge without discernment, and even as they imagine the sun to be a foot across, so they judge with regard to questions of conduct, and they are deceived by their foolish credulity with regard to both the one and the other matter. But it does not become us, to whom it has been given to know what is best in our nature, to follow in the footsteps of the common herd. Nay, rather are we bound to oppose their errors. For those who have vigor of intellect and reason, being endowed with a certain divine liberty, are not restricted by precedent, nor is this to be wondered at, for it is not they who receive direction from the laws, but rather the laws them. Uh, rather the laws them, and I, I don't think he's primarily talking about ethics there. I think this is an aesthetic argument that once you have enough practical wisdom, you're allowed to break all the rules and kind of create your new ones, and then the history of art is going to follow you instead of you following it. But that's really only given to the very very wise in aesthetics, which I guess would include Dante, pretty inarguably. Cool. Nathan? For me, it's not necessarily a point so much as a, uh, a question, and, you know, we'll have to save this for another day, perhaps, but what struck me on this reading is that he spends so much time on rehearsing proofs for God, and this is one Christian writing to another, what is the purpose of that? And David, if you can answer that briefly, great. If not, I'll simply leave that hanging as a question. I wondered about that too. Um, but maybe this is uh, this is actually uh, a spot where Dante is showing that he doesn't actually regard uh, himself as as necessarily an equal with uh, with his patron. Um, there's a there's a kind of teacherliness in this. That maybe maybe Con Grande is richer and more powerful, but Dante seems to be, um, uh, it, it spe speaking as one who who has the advantage um, in the areas of of letters and of uh, divinity. So uh, I, I wonder, I wonder if maybe it's 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 a power play. Or, or some other kind of uh, rhetorical display. Fair enough. I don't know. Hmm. Read it for yourself, dear listeners. And uh, if you want, let us know what you think. What are we going to be doing next week, gentlemen? Well, next week I'm at the helm, I think. Uh, and what we're going to be talking about is the event and the ensuing legend that we call Woodstock. Wow fascinating far out yeah so we're gonna be hanging out with hippies next week y'all um i'm looking forward to it i guess uh so in the meanwhile any feedback that you have on this episode we welcome it and you can send it to us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com you can also post it in the comments on our blog and the show notes when those go up at christianhumanist.org 
or you know, can send them uh, on Facebook, post it on the wall, send it in as a private message. Either way, we enjoy getting that feedback. Uh, we also enjoy uh, good ratings on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are rated, I guess. In the meanwhile, uh, be listening to uh, more Christian Humanist podcasts, be listening across our network, lots of good stuff to find there. Uh, the Christian Humanist podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist radio network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Uh, in the meanwhile, I'm David Grubbs on behalf of Nathan Gilmore and Michael Farmer, leaving you with words of Martin Luther. Let your sin, let your sin be strong, and let your faith be stronger.